Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This is part two of what was supposed to be a two-part series I am starting off the podcast with to give us a good foundation upon which to build the rest of the episodes. That foundation is on private property. Last week, we looked at the scriptural foundations for private property, and this week, we will be looking at its foundation in economic principles. If you didn't catch last week's episode, make sure you go ahead and do that as soon as you finish this one, or even stop this one right now and listen to that one first. The order isn't vital, just listen to both of them. I just think that the biblical foundations for private property are much more important than the economic principles for it. So what are some of the economic principles that show how vital private property, personal possessions, ownership of our goods is for economics? First, I want to talk about how it helps a group of people that many claim that it hurts. Personal property helps the poor. Many may make the claim that personal property hurts the poor because the wealthy have so much more of it than they do. Some may stop the argument there with just that idea that it is wrong for the rich to have more than the poor, which is absurd. God has no issue with some having more than others, as we can see from all the rich people that God blessed in the Bible, such as Abraham, Jacob, or David. Now, if the rich gained their wealth by sin, that is wrong. That is most definitely wrong and sinful. But just having more wealth in and of itself is not sinful. So the idea that just the fact that the rich have more than the poor, that idea is wrong, and it just follows the oppressor versus oppressed narratives that have been so common for over a century now. But some don't stop the argument there. They claim that the rich use their greater property to harm the poor. I will give it to this argument. It is a lot better by going a bit further and not just stopping with the idea that some having more than others is wrong since equality of outcome is a terribly unbiblical idea. And to a certain degree, these latter people are correct. The rich sometimes do abuse their wealth to the detriment of others. The Lord's brother gives several examples of this in his epistle. James chapter 2 verse 6 reads, But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, and they themselves drag you into court? Likewise, in chapter 5 he writes, Come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. 
Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasure in the last days. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not condemn you. Now, James is not saying here that being rich is sinful and that all rich people are evil and they all do these things. Some make that claim, such as black liberation theologians like James Cone. But to do that is to twist scripture and make these passages contradict other passages. So James is not saying that all rich use their wealth to oppress the poor, but that some do. The wicked rich, which is not all those who are rich, but only some, abuse their wealth to harm others. It is wrong when they do this, and James has strong words for such men in the passages I just read. And I will have my own strong words for them in further episodes of Theonomony as we talk about biblical restitution for wronging or defrauding others. However, because riches can be abused doesn't mean we should outlaw riches and make every rich person disperse his wealth until he is middle class by force of law. Every good thing can be abused. It also doesn't mean that personal property should be abolished because sometimes the rich use theirs to harm others. Like I just said, every good thing can be abused. Paul talks about people abusing grace to justify sin in Romans 6. That doesn't mean we should stop preaching the gospel because someone could profess faith, whether as a false convert or as a genuine believer seriously needing sanctification, and then abuse God's grace to justify their sin. God gave men authority as the heads of their homes. Some men abuse their authority to the detriment of their families. That doesn't mean we should reject God's created order for the three spheres of authority, family, church, and state. <coughs> Feminism. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I uh, just had something toxic in my throat right then. No, while the great possessions of the rich can be used to abuse others, that doesn't mean that personal property is wrong or should be abolished. Personal property is a great help to the poor to protect them from even greater abuses of the rich. If we lived in a communist utopia, or should I say dystopia, where no one owned anything because everyone owned everything, there is nothing those with less power can do to protect themselves from those with more power, except perhaps go to the justice system that we hope by the mercy of God and that society isn't totally corrupt. If we live in the World Economic Forum's dystopian vision where there are no longer possessions and services are treated as goods are today, there is nothing to protect the poor except the goodwill of the overlords, if the overlords even have any goodwill. But with personal property, the poor have a means to protect themselves. There are things they own that no one else has rights to, only they themselves and anyone to whom they give permission to use those things. If a man owns his own house, 
has a quite large garden in his backyard and works for himself rather than for another company, it is much more difficult for the rich to abuse him. He owns his own labor. He owns his own property. He uses his property to provide some of what he needs to survive rather than completely relying on others. This man is pretty self-sufficient and it's much harder for a self-sufficient person to be abused by the great wealth of others and personal property lets you be more self-sufficient rather than more reliant on others. So say the rich person, some rich person was to try to abuse this man. What would that rich person even try to do? Start a company in the same industry to try to push this guy's business into bankruptcy? I'm sure you can come up with a few other things, but the more personal property and the more productive that personal property is that the poor man has, then the more difficult it is for the wicked rich to abuse or oppress him. And once again, going back to what I said with James, not all rich are wicked, even though some people like to make that claim. So the property of the poor is his means to defend himself, to find solace that he is not at the mercy of potentially cruel overlords. His property is God's blessing on him to protect himself from abuse. He can turn his property into productive property. He can sell his property. He can trade his property for other people's property and all sorts of other things. And all of this without the permission of the rich. That is how private property and a free market protects the poor. It doesn't abuse the poor. It protects the poor. And now, while that is not exactly an economic principle for private property, it's more the practical applications of those economic principles for private property, it was still a benefit of private property for those typically claimed to be harmed by private property. But now let's look at some true economic principles for personal ownership, for possessions, for private property. So if you don't own things, how do you trade for other things in a free market? If you don't own things, how do you trade for other things in a free market? If I don't own my money, how do I trade some of it for things I need or want? How do I trade some of my dollars for some of your apples or one of my bookshelves for one of your dressers? If neither of us owns the dollars, the apples, the bookshelves, or the dressers because everyone owns all things in common. If we all own all things in common, is exchanging dollars for goods anything more than moving numbers that mean next to nothing around on a paper in exchange for something? That is why socialistic nations need to base the value of their goods on other non-socialistic nations. They have no way to gauge prices in and of themselves. Soviet government-owned companies trading goods with each other were little more than moving around numbers that meant next to nothing. It was the government's money, not theirs, and the prices had no real market value except to copy the market value of nations that still, by and large, practiced the free market. So in short, how does one person trade some of his or her possessions for another person's possessions if no one actually owns anything? That is why the idea of reducing prices by getting rid of the profit motive was a complete and utter failure. The profit motive and its foundation in private property 
are essential for an economy where people aren't starving to death by the millions. So I had intended to use part of John Locke's Two Treatises of Government for this episode since he has an excellent section on personal property. However, Locke roots so many of his arguments in scripture that it really goes with both episodes of this two-part series, not just one or the other. So my plan right now is to use just a small part of his book in this episode and then turn this two-part series into a four-part series. The next two weeks will be on John Locke and his book, Two Treatises of Government. And then after that, I have several interviews, and then we will see where the podcast goes from there. But for now, here is a sneak peek from a section of John Locke's book. Though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with and joined to it something that is his own and thereby makes it his property. It being by him removed from the common state nature hath placed it in, it hath by his labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. So that quote leads us well into the last support of private property from economic principles that I want to cover in this episode. God has given mankind dominion over the earth, over the earth itself and over the creatures living on the earth, or under the earth and the earth, you know, going into bugs and fish and all that. You know what I'm talking about. So therefore, those things are owned collectively by mankind. But stop right there, socialists. Just because I said they are owned collectively doesn't mean that everything is collectively owned. The earth itself and its natural state is collectively owned. Locke said in the quote I just read, how taking what is common to all men and adding your labor to it makes it your property. No one owns a tree in the middle of a forest, assuming no one owns the forest, but if I cut down that tree, mill it into lumber, and then build a table out of it, that table is my property. It is no longer common to all people. If I claim an unclaimed plot of land, clear it, build a house on part of it, and then start farming the rest, that piece of land is now my property. No one else can claim that piece of land as his because it is no longer common to all men. Now, why would someone do things such as this, adding his labor to that which is common to everyone? He does it to provide for his needs or desires or, those, or of those under his care, namely his family. He may do this by directly using the good he creates or the services he provides or he may exchange the goods or services for money or another good or service. That is the profit motive that I mentioned a bit ago. The profit motive is important because it motivates people to provide for their fellow man because in doing so, they receive something in return and use that something to provide for themselves or those under their care. 
Thus, the profit motive is not bourgeoisie nonsense, but vital to an economy and part of the reason why private property is essential. That was the second part of the short introductory series to Theana money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Say